from Exodus chapter number 17. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 8 of Exodus chapter number 17. The Bible says, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. They took a stone and put it under him. And he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side. His hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Notice with me verse 13, And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek, from under heaven. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this privilege to stand in your pulpit, Lord, with your spirit and preach your word. I just ask, Father, that nothing I do tonight would take any glory away from you. Father, that you would, through your spirit, speak to the hearts of those that are here tonight. I pray, Lord, for a blessing on each and every person that has made the effort to come and to be here tonight. Lord, and a blessing on those that aren't able to be here, Father, and you know each need. We love you tonight, Lord. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Here in Exodus chapter number 17, we have an introduction to a young man by the name of Joshua. I love the life of Joshua. Joshua was really one of the more prominent characters in the Word of God, and so very little is said about him from the pulpits today. The Bible shows us a parallel in the deliverance of the children of Israel out of Egypt. That was a picture of you and I lost in bondage and in sin, hopeless and helpless but delivered by the blood of a lamb slain from Egypt's bondage, from sin's bondage, and brought out that we might walk with the Lord. Throughout the wilderness, we have a picture of the Christian life in a defeated way. And uh, they took a journey that should have just took them a matter of days, took them 40 years. The Bible tells us why it took them 40 years. It took them 40 years because they had distrusted the Lord and they had lived with a heart of unbelief and so they could not enter in to the promised land. A whole generation fell there in the wilderness because of their unbelief. Well, finally, uh, at the end of their wilderness journey, after 40 years of aimless wandering, Moses' life comes to an end upon the top of Mount Pisgah and he's buried by God in a place unknown uh, to human mind or to scriptural record. And after this takes place, a new leader must lead the children of Israel. Well, God had already appointed that this young man by the name of Joshua would be the man to lead them. And so Joshua leads the children of Israel into the promised land. The promised land in the Word of God represents for us the victorious Christian life. Now, that might seem like an elusive topic. What does it mean to be victorious? You say, preacher, does that mean that I won't struggle anymore? No, uh, you're, you're never going to get victory without a struggle, without a fight. You say, preacher, does uh, having victory, does that mean my sinful flesh is eradicated? No, your sinful flesh will never be eradicated or annihilated until we're changed. Our bodies, our vile bodies are changed like unto His glorious body. 
But what the victorious Christian life means in a simple word is this, to walk with God on a consistent and faithful basis and to see His power and presence in your everyday life. To live a life that's pleasing unto God and that's evident in the eyes of others. I want to make a very simple statement right here. And I believe if you look around, uh, not necessarily at the people around you, you can if you want, but you might get a black eye doing that. But uh, if you look around at Christians living today, I'd say there's very few people that aren't living in defeat. Uh, We live in a day of defeat. And the average Christian lives in a discouraged and defeated state on a regular basis. Now you say, preacher, you're talking down about people that live defeated. Well, I certainly don't think that's how we ought to live, but i got to be honest with you and tell you, i got a few juniper trees planted in my backyard too for those special occasions when I get discouraged and feel defeated. No, I'm not above it and I'm not beyond it. But I will say this, God never intended for us to live defeated. The reason God promised them the promised land is so that they might enter in and live in victory and walk with God. Joshua was the man that God saw fit to be the one to lead them into this place of victory. But you'll find as you read through the life of Joshua, and Joshua's life spans uh, approximately four books of the Word of God. And uh, there's not very many men in Scripture that that is the case. You'll find Joshua in Exodus, and you'll find him in uh, Numbers, and you'll find him in Deuteronomy, and of course you'll find him in the book that bears his name. And you'll find him across all these books, and there's not very many men in the Word of God that that can be said about. Moses, I suppose, would be another one. He is mentioned in the book of Joshua, and I'd say certainly David probably is. But there's not very many men outside of our Lord that are mentioned in book after book after book. And so much of their life dealt with. Yet in the book of Joshua, we don't have a lot about the personal life of Joshua uh, told to us. We have a lot about his conquest, but we don't have a whole lot about his character. We have some of the statements that he made that are reflective of how he had walked with God, but we don't have a lot of the narrative of him walking with God. But as you read through the books of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you'll find many of the secrets as to why Joshua was the man that led them into the promised land. I've titled the message tonight, for lack of a better title. That's how I feel sometimes. I'm going to start saying that when I go to preach. For lack of a better sermon, turn in your Bibles. But uh, I want to preach to you tonight on the idea of a winning strategy. What does it take to be the kind of person that lives in victory? What does it take to be the kind of person that, that is able to defeat defeat? What is it that made Joshua such a remarkable young man? Joshua's life, like many people's lives, in fact, I'd say like everybody's life, when you look in the book of Joshua, there's not much said about him personally because it's not about the participation, it's about the preparation. That's what makes the difference. Those decisions made in the split second of the battle are always prefaced and always fortified by a secret life of preparation. And as you look through these three books of the Bible, we're going to be in all three of them tonight, you'll find little glimpses of this young man, just a little bit here and a little bit there, but they tell us so much about how he had lived his life. We read in Exodus chapter 17 about the defeat of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were in many ways a picture of the flesh, and they were always present to plague the children of Israel. And time and time again, they struggled and dealt with the Amalekites. But the Bible tells us that at this time, the Amalekites came to fight against the children of Israel, and God commanded that Moses should set certain men forth to fight against the Amalekites. And Joshua was at the forefront of this. I want to give you a few things 
tonight. I don't know how far we'll get. I've got several written down here. But I want to give you some things that Joshua knew about that I believe are the reason that he lived a victorious life. Let's read again in verse number 13. Uh, the Bible says, And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now, again, I'm not in any way trying to change the Scripture, but knowing that Amalek uh, is reflective in many ways of the flesh, we could almost say uh, that Joshua discomfited the flesh in a symbolic sense or in a typical sense. And can I just say to you tonight that one of the things that Joshua knew something about was about the warfare against the flesh. Joshua knew about the battle. Joshua knew what it took to win the victory. Can I say to you, I'm thankful we have victory in Jesus Christ tonight. I'm thankful for that. I'm, I'm thankful, and Paul was too, when he said, Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through Christ Jesus. And I'm thankful for the cross of Calvary, that we have victory. But can I say to you that just because victory has been attained does not necessarily mean we've apprehended it in our everyday lives. When we live a sin-sick and sin-filled life, we're not living victoriously. When we live in a life of doubts and uh, discouragement and frustrations, we're not living a victorious Christian life. And I've been there, and I'm sure there's times when you've been there in your life. But can I say to you that one of the only ways that we're going to defeat is we're going to have to fight. It's a battle. It's a battle day in. It's a battle day out. Joshua's life was life that was filled with battles. I mean, battle after battle after battle. And actually, through the book of Joshua, that's pretty much all you have is a string of battles, one after the other. Joshua was a warrior, and he understood that the only way victory could be obtained was with a fight. Can I say to you that your flesh is not going to go easy? It's not going to go easy. It's not going to go quietly, as the author put it into that good night. It's going to take a fight. You say, preacher, what do you mean it's going to take a fight? I mean, it's going to take denying your flesh some things. And it's not always easy either. You ever get mad at anybody? You don't have to answer that. They might be sitting next to you. You ever get mad at anybody? Sure, you probably do. You know what your first inclination is? Your first inclination is for your flesh to rear up and take vengeance. Your first inclination is for your flesh to rear up and say something that's in the flesh and that's out of the spirit and that's out of order. And it takes a little self-restraint. It takes not self-control, but spiritual control. It's a battle. Can I say it's a battle not only with the things that we deal with as far as getting angry and frustrated with others, uh, but laziness and apathy is one of the things that the flesh feeds off of and one of the fruits that the flesh gives us constantly. It's a battle. It's not easy. I mean, whoever told you this thing was going to be easy, they lied to you. Now, I'm thankful that the cross of Calvary paid for it all and pardoned it all. And I'm, I'm thankful that I don't have to work for my salvation. I'm thankful it's by grace. But if I'm going to live like a Christian, it's going to take work. There's going to be some times I'm going to want to do something, and it's going to hurt my testimony and hurt my Christian walk and hurt my fellowship with God. And it's not up, listen carefully, it's not up to the Lord to superimpose His will over mine. It's up to me to surrender my will to His. The Lord is not going to do anything to trump your free will. You've got a choice in the matter. I think we spend a lot of time praying for the Lord to help us with things that we could help ourselves with if we'd only obey the Lord. A lot of things that we spend time saying, Oh, Lord, I need your help. I need your help. I need your help. And I, I kind of think the Lord sometimes might say to us, You know, I've given you a lot of help. I've given you my scripture that has guided you. I've given you my spirit that comforts and uh, can control you if you allow him to. I've given you uh, the cross of Calvary as an example for forgiveness. On and on we could go. But God has given us some things. And if we don't utilize them, I believe we're without excuse. 
I believe Joshua understood this. I think he understood that his life was going to be one of warfare. And you mark it down, Joshua's whole life was just that. It was one of warfare. I mean, from the moment that you got saved until the moment that the Lord comes back or takes you into your presence, it's going to be a battle against your flesh. It's going to be a battle. You're always, you say, preacher, can I ever let my guard down? Sure you can. And that's the moment that you'll find your relationship with Christ affected negatively. Sure you can. you got the choice. Nobody can make you do anything. That's one thing I learned very, very early on in pastoring is that you can't make anybody do anything. I mean, anything. It don't matter. And truthfully, us, I mean, you can't really make us do anything. Uh, we have to do it of our own free will and volition. It's a choice that we have to make. Joshua understood that if he wanted the victory, he was going to have to fight the battle. He understood something about the warfare of the flesh. Look at verse 14. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book. This is what interests me. And rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Now you say, well, what do you reckon that book was? Well, I think at least a portion of it, if not all of it, we have sitting in front of us. We just read some of it. I believe that Joshua not only understood something about the warfare of the flesh, he understood he was going to have to fight, but he understood also about the words of Scripture. You'll find as you study through Joshua's life, he spent a lot of time with Moses. And I encourage young people to spend time with godly older people in their life. People they can gain some things from, get some wisdom from. That's never a bad thing. But you'll find that Moses' life was a life saturated with Scripture. In fact, to our best knowledge, and I, I agree with this and I believe this, I find no reason to doubt it, we know that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. God used him to pin those down. What do you reckon it was that Joshua and Moses spent so much time talking about? I believe just as this book was rehearsed into his ears, that uh, loads of scriptural knowledge was rehearsed into the ears of Joshua. And Joshua knew these things, and Joshua understood them. Later on, he would go on to talk about hiding the Word of God, uh, setting it as the standard in your family, and posting it in your home, and doing these things. Because Joshua understood the importance of Scripture. Can I say that if you don't have a regular intake of Bible in your life, you're never going to have victory. There's no way without it. Uh, you say, preacher, uh, what do you reckon uh, is so important about the Word of God? Well, if you're going out to battle, I know today we got guns and we got tanks and we got all kinds of technology that we couldn't even imagine. Most of the time, by the time we see it in warfare, it's been around 20 or 30 years. So the stuff they've got right now on the drawing boards would probably blow our minds. Uh, but at this time, basically the only weapon they might have had would have been a bow and arrow or a sword. And you see, it would have been foolish for a warrior to go out to war without his sword. He could go, he could stand on the battlefield, but he couldn't do a lot of fighting. He could hold his shield and be defensive, but he couldn't gain any ground. He could look like a soldier, but he couldn't execute anything like a soldier. In fact, if you took his sword away, a warrior would basically be useless. You know, the Bible calls itself the sword of the Spirit. Sharper than any two-edged sword. This, this is your weapon, friend. This is what you use. This fights the devil, it fights the world, and it fights your flesh. You take this out of your life and you're missing the entire thing. It's a sad truth, but I think most of us would agree with this, that the average Christian... You say, who is the average Christian? That's always somebody a little bit worse than me. You know, it. <laughs> that's always somebody a little bit worse than me when we talk about the average Christian. When you talk about the average Christian, I'm sure you always mean somebody a little bit worse than you, and we're always guilty of that. But I'd say the average Christian probably lets week to week pass by without opening God's Word. They may open it in a pew and wipe the dust off of it and... 
find a place, bumble about, because they don't know where the Word of God, uh, what the Bibles and the, uh, the books in the Bible are, and they may find a place, but by and large, spending any serious time in the Word of God is foreign to the majority of Christians. Is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that we live defeated and discouraged lives? When we don't have our sword and we walk into the battle, it's no wonder we cannot win. It's no wonder we have no power. It's no wonder we have no defense. You've got to learn to get into the Word of God. Uh, what does the Bible say about the Word of God? And we've uh, quoted it many times. Any time that you pledge to the Bible, you'll uh, speak about hiding God's Word in your heart that you might not sin against Him. That's not just a quaint notion that someone picked up, but the book of Psalms, chapter 119, teaches us this truth, that when we put the Word of God in our lives, it enables and encourages us to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Bible says, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Uh, very simply put, D.L. Moody used to always say, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And you have a choice to make about that. If your life is devoid of the word of God, I believe it would behoove you to ask yourself, why? Why? Why do I have time for everything else but not for the Word of God? Why is it uh, that I don't have a place for God's words in my heart and in my life and in my daily schedule? I believe we all need more of the Word of God in our lives, don't you? I believe one of the reasons Joshua had the victory he had was because he understood the importance of it. I mean, most of us, uh, you know, we get to a certain age and uh, I can even notice a difference. I'm young, they tell me, and uh, e even now compared to five, ten years ago, I can tell a difference in my ability to memorize. And some of you know what I'm talking about, maybe even on a very accelerated level. You know how difficult as the years go on. I, I just like to think it's because you're putting so much knowledge up there. It just takes longer to find a place to put it. Amen. You're just so smart. You can't help it. But it gets difficult to remember things. Imagine how difficult it must have been for Joshua to rehearse, to memorize the Word of God. And yet he did it. He did it. You say, why did he do that? The same reason a warrior carries his sword into every battle. Every battle. I mean, you won't find a good warrior without his sword. Whenever he goes to bed at night, it'll be next to him. When he gets up the next morning, it'll be next to him. When he goes to eat, it'll be next to him. No matter where he's at or what he's doing, he always has his sword with him. You know why? He's battle ready. He's battle ready. He understands the dynamics of warfare and he understands the importance of being ready. So he's got it always at hand. And yet as Christians, many times you say, Preacher, are you saying I need to carry a Bible with me at all times? Well, I think that's a wonderful practice. And I try to do that. But let me go a step further and say if you hide it in your heart, you've got it always at hand. Always at hand. I believe Joshua knew something about the warfare of the flesh and words of Scripture. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter number 24. You're not far away, just a few pages. And look at verse number 13. I want to give you another thought. The Bible says, and you can catch up with me when you get there. I'm just going to make you move again, though, just to be honest. But uh, it says in verse 13, And Moses rose up and his minister Joshua. Moses went up into the mount of God. Now, turn with me to chapter 33. I, I know I've got you running all over the place, and I might do that a few more times, but just be patient with me. Turn over to chapter 33. Listen to what the Bible says in verse number 11, Exodus chapter 33 and verse number 11. Now, we always pay attention to the Lord in this verse, and we always pay attention to Moses in this verse, and it's easy to miss Joshua, but I believe this is a defining time in his life. 
says, and the Lord spake unto Moses face to face. Boy, what a beautiful thought. Aren't you thankful we've got a God that'll speak with us? Aren't you thankful we have a God uh, that'll communicate with his people? And uh, like Abraham was called the friend of God, here Moses speaks to the Lord. The Bible says, as a man speaketh unto his friend, he turned again into the camp. Notice this, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. I was thinking uh, yesterday as I was driving, I began to muse upon this passage and I began to think, you know, I wonder what Joshua and the Lord talked about. I, I, I don't know what, and, and I understand that I get to talk with the Lord on a regular basis, and I understand, uh, but I believe here that the Lord was speaking audibly to them. I don't believe that takes place today, but I believe that's what was taking place in this passage. And I think often to myself, you know, if you could ask God a question and get an audible answer. If you could talk to the Lord face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. Here Joshua was, and he stayed in the tabernacle. He stayed longer than Moses did. Let me say that thirdly, I believe Joshua understood something about the worship of God. When Moses left the tabernacle, Joshua stayed. Now, I don't believe Joshua stayed against his will. I believe Joshua stayed because that's where he wanted to be. He understood something about spending time with God. John chapter number 15, the Bible says Christ is speaking to his disciples and he said, abide in me and I shall abide in you and you shall bring forth much fruit. For Without me, ye can do nothing. Joshua understood if he wanted to win the battle, he had to do it with God's help. It was the only way it could be done. He understood that time spent with God was an essential quality of a life of victory. Let me tell you something. There's no shortcut to spending time with God. It just is what it is. You can have everything else, but you don't spend the time with God that needs to be spent. You're not going to have victory. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to be defeated. You're going to live your life in frustration. You're going to deal with the same sins over and over and over and over again. You're never going to get victory. You're never going to make progress in your life. It's impossible without the presence of God and spending time with Him. There's no substitution for it. You can have all the ministry manuals. You know, as a pastor, there's a lot of things comes across your desk. And uh, we get stuff in the mail, and uh, I get stuff at home, I get stuff here, and we get stuff all the time. Everybody's always coming out with a new book, and everybody's always coming out with a new strategy, and everybody's always coming out with a new program, a new ministry. Hey, I'm not against doing new things. I think that's a wonderful thing, as long as it doesn't compromise the Word of God, as long as it doesn't compromise the truth of God's Word. I'm not against that, I, as long as it's not worldly. Uh, as long as it doesn't step outside the bounds of what God requires. I'm not opposed to that. But let me say that there's a reason they keep writing those books. There's a reason that those books keep being written over and over and over again. Everyone's a little bit different. Everybody's trying to find the secret. It's like the diet programs. I, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody in here has ever been on a diet, but... Uh, there's some people that are into these diet things, you know, and uh, I mean, I don't think anybody in here would need to go on a diet. Let me paraphrase lest I have to slip out during prayer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's all kinds of new diet things. I mean, there's juice diets and there's uh, cracker diets and there's, uh, I don't know, Kool-Aid powder diets. And there's just everywhere you turn, there's all kinds of new diets. There's diets that tell you carbs are the thing. All you need are carbs. There's another diet that comes out the next week says you don't want carbs. They're bad for you now. There's some places say if you can just live off trans fat that you'll be all right. And then they come out and they say, well, it's that trans fat. It's making us all fat. And on and on and on it goes. There's all, you know why? Listen carefully. And I think we all know this because there's no shortcut to it. At the end of the day, it's hard work. 
At the end of the day, that's the only way it can really be done. Same way with the presence and power of God. They can write all the books that they want. You can have all the strategies you want. You can have all the devotionals you want. Listen, let me say this very carefully. I'm not opposed to devotionals. But a lot of people use devotionals as a crutch instead of meeting with God. A lot of people, you know what I think is ideal? I think it's ideal that we spend time with God until we feel like God's done with us. That may be five minutes, maybe 50 minutes, it may be five hours. You say, well, preacher, you don't understand. i got a busy schedule in the morning. Well, you know, whether I do or not, God understands that. He understands that. But I think sometimes we have this notion, we go out and we buy a devotional, and well, I'll spend my ten minutes in that devotional. And again, I'm not opposed to them. Don't misunderstand me. But don't use this as a crutch. Don't spend your ten minutes in it and then say, okay, I'm good, I've done my duty to God, I'm all right now. Nothing substitutes the presence of God. Nothing substitutes Him speaking to you through His Word and through His Spirit. God may use some of those things in your life, and that's all good and well. But don't misunderstand me. There's something to be said for sticking back when others have moved on. I believe Joshua did it because he was hungry for the presence of God. I believe he did it because he understood the uh, precedence of spending time with God. I believe this verse, probably more than any other concerning the life of Joshua, is the reason we see him leading in the battle later. He had spent time with an almighty God, and he understood the value of it. Let me give you another thought. I want you to turn with me to chapter 32. You're not far away, just a page or two. Chapter number 32 of the book of Exodus. I want to give you another thought, and I believe this is something that we need today in this day that we live in. I believe we live in a day of everything goes Christianity. Don't you believe that? I mean, it's okay. You'll wake up in a second. I I, I believe we live in a day of everything goes Christianity. Don't, Don't you see that around you? I mean, as you look around, don't you see in the day that we live in, it doesn't matter what a man believes, it doesn't matter what he teaches, just as long as he says he loves Jesus, well, he must be all right. You know, the Bible said to try the Spirit, see whether they're of God or not. I know we live in a day where everybody takes the book of Matthew and takes one little verse that says, Judge not that you be not judged, rip it out of context and twist it into something that God never meant it to mean, and then claim that it's wrong to judge people when the Bible clearly says that the spiritual man judgeth all things. But I believe we live in a day if everything goes Christian. If somebody claims the name of Christ, well, that, then they must be all right. And they must be good. When the Bible says that there would be many in that day that would say, Lord, Lord. But that doesn't mean that they know the Lord. Just because they say it doesn't mean they know it. Exodus chapter 32. We're all familiar with this passage. We know it as the passage, uh, the teaching, the lesson, the narrative of the golden calf. Moses has been up on top of the mount with God and spending time with the Lord. He comes down with the law written on tablets of stone. He's got Joshua with him. Listen to what it says. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted. This is the people that are in the camp. Now, at this present moment, the people that are in the camp, the Bible teaches, are uh, partaking. They, they're stripped naked. They're dancing around a golden calf in pagan rituals and uh, in pagan practices. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said unto Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. And he said, it is not the voice of them that shout for mastery. Neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome. But the noise of them that sing do I hear. Joshua's coming down the hillside with Moses. And he hears all the commotion going on in the camp. And Joshua looks at Moses says, It sounds like there's fighting going on down there. It sounds like a conflict and a battle is taking place. See, Joshua's ears weren't quite as wise as Moses' were. 
Joshua hadn't heard all the things that Moses had heard, I guess. I don't know how old Joshua was when they left Egypt. I do know he was with them because him and Caleb were the only exceptions of those that had come out of Egypt that entered into the promised land. I do not know if Joshua remembered what it was like in Egypt. I don't know if he remembered the pagan worship. I don't know if he remembered the pagan dancing and the things that would take place. But now Moses, Moses did. And those old trained ears of Moses, they heard something different than Joshua heard. Moses listened, he said, it don't sound like people winning, and it don't sound like people losing. What it sounds to me like is a bunch of people singing. Let me say that Joshua learned something about the warfare of the flesh, and he learned something about the words of Scripture, and he learned something about the worship of God. But here in this passage, we find that Joshua had learned something about the wisdom of discernment. Not everybody that says they're fighting is fighting. Not everybody that says they're in the battle are in the battle. Not everybody that claims to know Christ knows Christ. A lot of stuff called Christianity Day Church that just flat out ain't. I mean, it can, they can call themselves that. They can have everybody else call themselves that. But you line it up to the Word of God, and it's abundantly clear that it's not Bible Christianity. As Joshua comes down the mountain. He says, sounds like those people are fighting down there. But Moses had been around long enough. No, they weren't fighting. They were just playing. There's a lot of people in the church today claim they're fighting, but they're really just playing. A lot of people that claim that what they've got is Bible Christianity, and let you, yet you examine it closely. What were they doing? They was dancing naked around that cow. Do you know that they had even gone so far? They were keeping a host, a, a feast unto Jehovah. That's what Aaron said. Aaron said, let us keep a feast unto the Lord, unto Jehovah. So in other words, what they had done is they had made this molten calf, and uh, by the way, usually what leadership means with their rhetoric is not what the followers mean with their rhetoric. You listen carefully. There, there is, and I'm just trying to educate just a little bit. There is a reason for ambiguous rhetoric. It means one thing to one person, something else to another. There's a reason people don't define what they believe. They don't define what they believe so that no matter what anyone else believes, they can agree with it, and they'll have seeming harmony. There's a reason people don't preach divisive doctrines today, Brother Ralph, because if they preach divisive doctrines, if they stand in a pulpit and say, this is what I believe, and this is what the Bible teaches, and it's clear-cut, and it doesn't change, and it doesn't bend, yes, I'm being dogmatic about it, because God's dogmatic about it, and the Bible's clear about it, you start dividing people from you. See, a church isn't defined by what a pastor will say, but by what he won't say. A lot of preachers get up. I mean, there's a lot of places that you get up and preach that you believe in the Word of God. That doesn't bother anybody. But now you start laying down definitions and defining terms, like I believe in the King James Bible, you cut some people from your hurt. You get up and you say, well, I, I, I don't, I, I'm against sin. Well, what does that mean? The psychologist will call sin negativity. That doesn't mean anything, Brother Charlie. Preacher isn't saying he's against negativity. Some people, the health and wealth preachers, will call poverty sin or sickness sin. But now when we start saying things like alcohol is a sin, that's a whole different matter. When we start saying things like sexual relations outside of the bond of wedlock is sin, then we start, we start cutting some people. You understand what I mean, Brother Charlie? It's not about what a man will say, it's about what he won't say. Because when you speak in ambiguous rhetoric, you give the people in the congregation the ability to agree without understanding. 
The ability to say, oh, yeah, that sounds good. You know what happened? Joshua, listen to what Joshua did. Or not Joshua, excuse me, Aaron. Aaron said, let's keep a feast unto Jehovah. Let's keep a feast unto the Lord. That sounded good. In other words, he was saying, yeah, we're doing this for the Lord God of Israel. But you know what the people said when they saw that cow? They said, these be the gods that delivered us out of Egypt. They had a different definition. That's why it's important to define ourselves. That's why it's important to be clear and direct in what we believe. But they had named that, we could say, and I understand this is not abundantly clear, Brother Ralph, but but we could almost say that Aaron said, this is Christianity. It would have been Judaism at that time. wouldn't have even really been Judaism at that time because that terminology and that name was not applied to this body of religious understanding and this uh, body of revelation from God. But essentially, Aaron said, it doesn't matter what it really is, we're going to call it what people want it to be. That's the day we live in today. A lot of stuff people call Christianity. But it ain't got a touch of God on it, not within a thousand miles. There's a lot. Some of the most worldly and fleshly things out there today are marketed as Christianity. I mean, some of those wicked, some of the most ungodly things. Ninety percent of modern Christian music, you could switch the word ba- or the word Jesus with baby, and it would sound exactly the same. It wouldn't even sound different. I mean, nine times out of ten, it's nothing but just B-rate musicians that couldn't cut it in Nashville. Amen? I, I don't know whether you like it or not, but it's the truth. The truth is, I mean, it's it's just as wicked, it's just as ungodly as the kind of stuff that your parents were warning you about when you were young. And today it's branded as Christian. And some of you, the very stuff you were warning your children about, and it's just as wicked and just as ungodly, but it's branded as Christianity. Joshua learned that day how to tell the difference. He learned that day what was real and what wasn't. We live in a day of fairy tales. The Bible said it would be thus. That there would come a time when men would seek after fables. And that's what we live in today. It's all just about branding. If you brand it a certain way, that's good enough. Joshua said, nuh-uh. I know the difference. I know the difference. I've seen the difference. I'm reminded in the book of uh, Ezra when the temple was built. And when the temple had been erected, the Bible says that the old men wept and the young men cried out. And rejoiced. You know what the difference was? The young men hadn't seen the first temple. They was happy to have what they had. But the older men, you see, they had been there. They had seen it. They had seen Solomon in his splendor. Probably not Solomon, they would seen the temple. They had seen all the beautiful gold and all the beautiful brass. They had seen all the things, the temple. The older crowd, they knew the real thing. They weren't satisfied with this second-rate stuff. We've got a a, a generation of Christians today that we're raising on a false Christianity just because it has the name of Christianity. That's all that we've sought for. Joshua said, if I'm going to have victory, I'm going to learn how to see the difference in it. Let me make a statement. I don't know. I don't know if this will upset anybody or not. It may, but you can't have, listen, you can't be a strong Bible Christian seated at the feet of infidels and heretics. You cannot, if you set yourself always at the feet of people that have strong doctrinal problems. There's a lot of Christians that get, and I'll be honest with you, shut-ins are particularly susceptible to it because many of them can't get out and they can't sit under a pastor and they can't go to a church. Uh, but a lot of these guys and, and girls that a lot of people are watching on TV, and they say, boy, that sounded good. You check into what they really believe and you'll find out they're heretics. 
I mean, a lot of these guys, they sound good. They got the nicest suits, man. They got the nicest haircut. I mean, somebody like me, uh, they'd arrest for just trying to step on stage. You know what I'm too ugly. I just, I got a radio face. <laughs> I, I think I have a Morse code face. It's that bad. But a lot of these guys, a lot of people are getting their teaching and their understanding and their beliefs from are absolutely heretical on many points of doctrine. you got to learn how to tell the difference. Now, I'm not saying I understand the old adage of eating the fish and spitting out the bones. And I'm not going to say that I don't own any books by people that I uh, wouldn't have allowed in the pulpit of Walridge Baptist Church. Sure, I do. I'm not saying you can't gather things from many areas, but you've got to understand the difference. You've got to have wisdom about it. You've got to have the wisdom of discernment. Let me give you another thing. I want you to look with me in Numbers chapter 14. I'm going to give you these last two in a hurry. I'm not going to stick with them very long. Numbers chapter 14. Look with me at verse number 6. Now, the context of this passage is uh, those that have come out of Egypt with Moses are beginning to long for Egypt once again. And they're complaining and they're murmuring and they're wanting to go back. And the Bible says in verse 6, And Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes. Uh, now, most of us know what that terminology means. don't mean they went to a place and uh, paid seven fifty so they could borrow a pair of pants for a week. What it means is they took and they tore their clothes. And it was a symbol of contrition and grief and repentance. The Bible teaches us, and there's many, many more lessons in Joshua's life, but I believe this is a key one. Joshua was grieved for the sin of others. Joshua knew something about the weariness of sin. He hated sin. There are certain things, listen to me, there are certain things that if you love God, there are certain things you're going to hate. I mean, I know that doesn't seem very familiar. I, don't, I know that doesn't seem acceptable because we're taught as Christians uh, that we're never going to hate anything. But let me put it this way. The farmer that loves his crops, he hates weeds. The shepherd that loves his sheep, he hates wolves. I mean, on and on. The doctor that loves his patients, he hates sickness and disease. There's some things that if you love God that you're going to hate and sin in all its variations and all of its forms is something that as Christians we ought to hate. It ought to grieve us. I'll tell you why our lives are eat up with sin. We don't hate it enough. Uh, old Leonard Ravenhill, you say, we'll never be broken from our sin until we're broken over our sin. Until we grow to hate it and see the destruction of it. Uh, until, and you know why we don't see it? Because we don't value our relationship with God enough. If we valued our relationship with God in a greater way, then it would grieve us in a greater way the things that affect and impede our relationship with the Lord. We're not spending time in the tabernacle, so we're not rending our clothes over sin. We're not spending time in the presence of God, so we're not spending time in the ash pit of contrition and repentance over our sin. We've got to learn to be broken. We've got to learn to hate it. You say, you mean hate sinners? No, I mean hate sin. Well, I love the sinner. And, and I'm going to be honest with you, I, I hate sin in my life. Maybe I'm selfish in saying this, but I hate the sin in my life probably more than I hate the sin in others. I, I hate the things in my life that obstruct my relationship with an almighty God. I believe Joshua had, Joshua had victory because he learned to hate the things that would prevent victory. I mean, we see this through, throughout his whole life. And you'll see in the book of uh, Joshua, and I believe it's chapter number 8, when uh, the nation of Israel had sin in the camp. And they went out against Ai and lost 36 men. And they get back and Joshua begins crying out to the Lord and he's kind of having a, a, a pity party. He's saying, Lord, I don't understand. I've worked so hard and I've loved you and I've lived for you and on and on. And the Lord says, essentially, 
This is my this is my understanding of it. He says, Joshua, shut up. There's sin in the camp. There's sin needs to be dealt with, Joshua. That's the problem. You can have all the melodramatic contrition and complaint you want, but if there's sin in the camp, that needs to be dealt with. And so Joshua rises from his feet. You know the the uh, the repercussions that uh, the man Achan had to uh, deal with his whole family. I mean, not just his family, but his cattle. I mean, his him, his wife, his children, his livestock, everything he owned was stoned to death and burned. Sounds to me like Joshua hated sin. He didn't hate Achan, but he hated sin so much in the way it could prevent the progression of the nation of Israel that he was willing to destroy it and get rid of it. I'll give you a final thing, and I'm going to hush. I'll just read these to you. You're welcome to turn if you'd like, but you don't have to. In Numbers 27:18, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Take thee Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. Lay thine hand upon him. Numbers 32.12 says, Save uh, Jacob, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. Deuteronomy 34.9 says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. I believe Joshua understood something about walking in the Spirit. I understand the Spirit of God did not indwell men in this time. I, I'm very aware of that. I, I'm aware of the fact that uh, the Holy Spirit of God did not live within Joshua in the same way that He lives within us. But I believe one of the chief reasons that Joshua had victory is he knew that the only way it could be done was by daily walking with the Lord. That's what that phrase means when it says he wholly followed the Lord. There was no area of his life that was exempt. No area of his life that he said, no, Lord, this belongs to me. Joshua took his whole soul and body and being and laid it before the God of heaven and said, Lord, it all belongs to you. Not a single part that I'll hold back, but God, all of my life is yours. The Bible tells us uh, whenever uh, David was getting ready to go out and fight Goliath the giant, he made this statement. He said that the battle is the Lord's. You don't have it within you. Neither do I. I'd be the most discouraging motivational speaker in the world. (laughs) You don't have it within you. There's no little flicker of light within you that if it's just encouraged will cause you to be such a great person. No, no. The Bible says that in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. The only part of you that's capable is the spiritual man as he's submitted to the Holy Spirit of God. It's not about you and your ambitions. It's about the God of heaven and following Him and obeying Him. You cannot do it in and of yourself. In fact, you can't do anything in and of yourself. It's what Christ said. Without me, you can do nothing. And say most things or small things, but nothing. There's nothing in your life. Say, preacher, I've been spinning my wheels. Well, you need to get traction. The only way that happens is walking with the Lord. Say, preacher, I've just been in a ditch. My old preacher used to say that a ditch is nothing but a grave with both ends kicked out. I believe that's true. You spend enough time in the ditch and enough time in a rut, and you might find you just get buried there. When you're in that position, the only hand that can help you out is the hand of the Lord that's not shortened, but it can save. Tonight, if God's spoken to your heart about any of these areas, it's not between me and you, it's between you and Him. And I encourage you to get alone with the Lord, get on this altar and speak to the Lord and allow Him to give you the help that you need.